everybody. This is Volts for May 25th, 2022. Volts podcast, Abigail Hopper on the trade case that is crushing the U.S. solar industry. I'm your host, David Roberts. Back in 2012, the Obama administration levied tariffs on solar panels from China to punish the country for unfairly subsidizing its panels in an attempt to corner the market. In the ensuing years, U.S. imports from China fell off sharply and imports from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam rose just as quickly. Early this year, a tiny California-based solar manufacturer, Auxin, filed a trade complaint with the U.S. Department of Commerce, alleging that China is effectively laundering its solar supply chain through third-party countries, thereby illegally circumventing tariffs. It asked Commerce to apply commensurate tariffs on imports from those countries. Commerce is investigating. Meanwhile, the industry has been thrown for a loop. Imports have fallen off, projects are being canceled, and projections of growth are being revised radically downward. The tariffs could be anywhere from 30 to 250%, which would radically change the economics of big solar projects, and if applied, will be retrospective over the past two years, which means even existing contracts are in jeopardy. The uncertainty has cast a pall over the entire sector. The Solar Energy Industries Association has been advocating against tariffs from the beginning and is calling on commerce to dismiss the complaint. I contacted Abigail Hopper, the head of SEIA, to talk about the merits of the case, whether building a domestic solar supply chain is a good goal, whether tariffs work, and what other policies might be preferable. With no further ado, Abigail Hopper of SEIA. I'm not going to say the whole thing. Uh, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So this is a naughty and complicated issue we're going to get in here. <laughs> Does that be K-N-O-T-T-Y naughty? Yes, exactly. Okay, just checking. Also, perhaps naughty. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see at the end. So I want to kind of go through it piece by piece. You know, before we get to the tariff dispute, the tariff case that's at issue here, let's go back a little bit and just talk about the tariffs. These date back to Obama, the Obama era. So why don't maybe you just tell us sort of what tariffs are in place and what is the rationale for tariffs? Like when Obama put these in place in 2012, what is the sort of stated rationale? What are they meant to accomplish? Sure. And you already uh, have displayed more knowledge than the average uh, person around the, the multiple layers of tariffs that the solar industry is dealing with. So, yes, these go back to 2012. And at that time, there was an allegation and then a finding that China was dumping its product into the United States. That meant that the Chinese government was unfairly subsidizing production of solar cells and solar modules and then selling them at the, into the United States below cost. So if it cost 10 bucks to make it, they would sell it in for $5 
and the Chinese government would suck up the other $5. And presumably, this is not just like unfair or unsporting. This violates some law or treaty. Yep, it violates the trade laws, and therefore the tariffs were put in place to address that unfair practice. Mm -hmm. And then there were more under (laughs) Trump. What did he add? So the, the ones we just talked about, people refer to usually as the ADCVD, anti-dumping countervailing duties cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are from 2012. And those apply to products coming out of China. In 2017, a case was initiated. And then in 2018, President Trump imposed tariffs. And those are the Section 201. That's the section of the statute it applies to. And those were placed on cells and modules coming from any country in the world. There were a couple of specific exceptions, but generally any country in the world, uh, these tariffs applied. And those, uh, they started at 30% and stepped down. There's a whole drama around the bifacial modules and that exclusion I'm happy to talk about. But those were additive to whatever uh, ADCVD tariffs that were already in place. So specifically then, imports from China would face both of these tariffs added together. Correct. I mean, the rationale for the first set makes sense. If China's doing something illegal under trade law, that makes sense. But what is the rationale for just slapping tariffs on all imports? They can't be that all importers are are breaking trade laws. What's the rationale there? Yeah, it's a totally different theory of the case. It is not a claim based on fault or anyone being nefarious or violating laws. Rather, the finding is the allegation and the finding is that the U.S. domestic market has been harmed by competition and they basically need a pause. They need a pause. They need a like a break. Like, give me a second. You know, I got to get it together. And so the best way that one of my trade lawyers explained it to me as a, I was not well-versed in trade law when I started this gig. Little did you know you were going to get a, a PhD did, course. I know, right? Uh, he explained it as basically putting an umbrella over the United States. Uh, right. And so there's this protection, right? And the, the goal of those Section 201 tariffs is to provide um, an opportunity for the U.S. Uh, domestic solar ma- domestic manufacturing base to recover and to build back. Sure. But what I don't get is that seems like the mirror image of Chinese subsidies. In other words, <laughs> that seems like giving the U.S. domestic market an unfair advantage. Like It seems like that would also be illegal under trade law for the same reasons. So it's not illegal under U.S. trade laws, right? It's certainly, I think a lot of people think, smacks of protectionism of, of U.S. industry. There were, were complaints taken to the World Trade Organization, right, to allege that the imposition of the Section 201 tariffs violates World Trade Organization rules or I don't know what they're called there, actually. Whatever. <laughs> they're not allowed. <laughs> it, it literally is just a subsidy to U.S. manufacturers, just like China is subsidizing its own manufacturers. I think that's a very fair argument to make. Um, I think what we saw, which I think is important, is 
it didn't actually have the same impact though, right? Like there were definitely a couple of facilities that were built in the United States after the 201 tariffs were announced, but it certainly wasn't enough to supply the U.S. market, right? It did not create a robust domestic manufacturing base. And so round two of the Section 201 tariffs just took place in 2021. And in early 2022, President Biden extended the Section 201 tariffs. Yeah, I, and I don't think I'm alone here, don't get that. It seems like, I mean, uh, you know, we can talk later about the question of a domestic supply chain. I want to get into that, but it seems like a crude and not particularly effective tool. And I had thought that sort of the conventional wisdom was that this is a sort of slightly crazy thing Trump did. So what on earth, why, (laughs) what reason did the Biden administration give for continuing these tariffs? So the Biden administration gave a couple of reasons. One was that the U.S. manufacturing uh, industry had not recovered sufficiently. And they said partly that was due to COVID, right? That as Mm. the entire economy kind of was jolted for a year, year and a half, that they too were. And so they sort of lost out on this time of protection. Right. So they need a break. They just need a little longer break. They're (laughs) not quite refreshed and ready yet. Exactly. I mean, I know that feeling. Certainly. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm very relatable. <laughs> I just don't usually get government um, government <laughs> assistance with it. <laughs> they did do two important things, though, in the February 2022 decision. Um, one was to exclude from Section 201 bifacial modules that were being imported. That was a significant um, development. Tell us what bifacial panels are and why that's significant. So bifacial panels are solar panels used primarily, almost exclusively in the utility scale sector Mm -hmm. that have uh, the ability to reflect light and, and create energy from both sides of the panel. So there's material on the back of the panel that allows it to create more energy and therefore be more efficient and produce more electrons, obviously changing the economics right. of, of energy production. And that's, that's the bulk. I mean, that's utility scale. Mm-hmm. So that's like the bulk, you know, sort of by number, by weight, but that's the bulk of, of imports. So then what's the rationale there for, <laughs> for slapping a tariff on everything except the main import? Like, I'm losing track of what substantive uh, <laughs> goal is served here. Well, so the bifacial exclusion um, was originally requested shortly after the imposition of the 2018 201 tariffs. Mm-hmm. And at that time, bifacial modules did not represent a large portion of the U.S. market, the, mm. the import markets. It really was a newer technology that was more in the R&D phase. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about kind of the theory of the case, the theory of the case is to allow the domestic market the opportunity to really recover and continue to develop. No one in the U.S. was producing bifacial modules. And so allowing bifacial exclusion made sense because it wasn't competing with the U.S. marketplace. And that's still primarily the case. There aren't... um, there really aren't manufacturers of bifacial modules, certainly not at scale in the United States. Mm. 
So the original tariffs, the Obama tariffs, the rationale there is that China's breaking trade laws. Mm -hmm. The rationale for Trump's tariffs is we want to make room for the domestic manufacturing, domestic solar manufacturing industry to grow a little and get more robust. So before we get into the rest of it, I guess the question here, I have sort of a, a twofold question. One is, is it the case that once these tariffs were put in place, domestic solar manufacturing grew and flourished as intended? You know, the larger question there is the reason, you know, I think everybody at this point sort of gets this, the reason there's a huge solar manufacturing sector in China is not just because the government subsidizes it, although it does, but it's got cheap materials and it's got cheap labor, you know, it just has advantages, all the same advantages that got manufacturing offshore in the first place. Is a tariff of the size being discussed here enough to close that gap between the sort of costs of manufacturing abroad and the costs of manufacturing in the U.S.? Um, no. No. it's not big enough to to close the gap no the simple answer is that the tariffs alone did not incent the kind of investment that the proponents of those tariffs articulated it would right there were certainly a couple of companies that made the decision to invest in the united states and that's great but they certainly did not bring the scale of investment that would uh, support our entire marketplace. Uh, and so, you know, we can, I'm, I'm excited about the conversation about what would it take right, to yeah. develop at that scale. But tariffs, we, I agree with you wholeheartedly that they're a crude and inefficient tool to create domestic manufacturing in the United States. All right. Well, let's, we're going to return to that later. But so sticking with the tariffs, so these, the Obama tariffs are in place, the Trump tariffs are in place, Biden extends the Trump tariffs. And then we get this case, this (laughs) U.S. solar manufacturer, Oxen, files a complaint basically saying, as I understand it, that China is circumventing these tariffs. It's basically just exporting its materials to nearby countries and then manufacturing the stuff there. and, And we're importing from those countries, but in all but name, we're still importing from China. Basically, China is using Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam to launder its its solar cells and panels and thereby dodging the tariffs. This is the case Oxen is making. You know, I think there's been a lot of focus on Oxen, and this is, you know, if people care, it's a pretty tiny (laughs) company as these things go does not appear to be particularly robust or or growing there's been a lot of focus on oxen but i don't uh, i'd rather just skip all that and talk about the case itself so Mm -hmm. i guess the where i'd like to start is just on the merits of the case is this true is china guilty of circumventing tariffs by laundering its materials through these other countries no (laughs) it's not and I can tell you why. So there, there is a statute, right? There's a statute uh, on point that they have alleged that China has violated. And I think the evidence will show that they have not. And like the key piece of that statute says that in order 
uh, for it to qualify the actions you're described, you described well, to qualify as circumvention, the manufacturing or the processing in the third party country, the third country, so the Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, and uh, Vietnam mm-hmm. has to be minor and insignificant. Like those are terms of art in the statute. So in other words, those countries would just be taking the material and cranking it out and not really doing, not really adding value. Right. Right. Like in my mind, it's sort of like, you know, it all gets there. They slap a sticker on the back and then it's like, boom, now it's from Vietnam and not from China. But that's not what's happening. I do not claim to be a supply chain expert, but (laughs) I certainly uh, have a lot of them that are consulting for us, as you could imagine. And certainly cell manufacturing, the, the manufacturing of solar cells is far from minor and insignificant, right? It is a very complex, very technologically advanced process that adds a ton of value to the product. The United States Department of Commerce has determined in four different cases already that the country of origin is where the cell is manufactured. Hmm. But as they have looked at other cases and and considered other claims, they have made that determination. Because it, you know, you where do you apply the tariff? Oh, you apply it where the where the cell is manufactured. Okay, so the cell is manufactured in these four countries. And so, no, I do not think, and our council does, certainly doesn't think that the requirements needed to sh- to demonstrate circumvention have been met in this case. But another way of looking at this, sort of intuitive way of looking at this, is you got these Chinese companies that are receiving all these subsidies from the Chinese government, which is the whole sort of issue here. And then they open subsidiaries in Cambodia, et cetera, and manufacture there. So in a sense, they're not manufacturing in China, but in another sense, they are still subsidized in the way that caused the original tariffs. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the sort of unfair subsidies still seem to apply, even if a Chinese company opens a satellite company in Cambodia, it's still getting the subsidies. Do you know what I mean? I understand the point that you are making. I don't don't agree with it uh, wholeheartedly. I think two points. One is that some of the companies that we're talking about that are impacted by this circumvention petition are not Chinese owned companies. They're mm. other companies like from different countries. And so that, that's sort of the reality. Um, and then secondly, you know, those petitioners chose to use a specific statute and they didn't meet the requirements of the statute. If they want to go back and choose a different statute, then we can have a different conversation about whether there is sort of unfair dumping of some sort. But that's not the issue before us today. Like I get your, your sort of theoretical point. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we're fighting a battle in a, as we have heard, a quasi-judicial proceeding. <laughs> We've heard that term so often. And so I'm going to stay focused on the proceeding in front of me. <laughs> right. The case itself. Yeah. So if there are a bunch of companies involved in these countries that are not Chinese subsidiaries, then the substance of the case is just that they're sort of conduits for Chinese parts and materials. Yeah. Yeah, that some of the raw materials are coming from China, even if the ultimate manufacturer of the cell or the module is not Chinese-owned. Right. So the substance of your side of the case is to say it's not true that 
the manufacturing taking place in these countries is small and trivial. They are adding value and thus it's not just laundered Chinese stuff. That's the, the substance here. Correct. Given that commerce, the commerce department, which is the one doing these investigations and, and, and I guess you'd call them the quasi judge and these quasi judicial, uh, proceedings has found this in previous cases. Is it your sense that when they get around to ruling on this, they're going to find that again and rule in your favor? Like I, I obviously you probably don't want to handicap this and make, you know, <laughs> guesses and everything, but like, are you confident enough in the merits of your case that you think you have a pretty good chance of, of getting a good ruling at the end of all this? I do. I do. I think that the statute is clear about what the petitioner has to show. The petitioner has actually testified in other proceedings, back to those Section 201 cases we talked about. Mm-hmm. The petitioner has has testified under oath that cell manufacturing is a complex and technical and you know highly value-producing process. And so like there's not really anyone that's disputing that. Uh, So I think we're pretty confident on the merits. Obviously, one of the things we've also been focused is on the timeliness of a decision. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into that. Uh, So the situation is that there's this case in front of now uh, a Commerce Department. The schedule is that Commerce is going to issue some sort of preliminary results or preliminary findings in August and then is supposed to issue a decision in January of 2023. Although, as I understand it, they can, if they want to apply for like a 65-day extension, which could push it out into early to mid-2023. So this situation, (laughs) if they don't accelerate things at like you're asking them to, uh, the situation is going to linger for a while, potentially for a full year. So let's then talk about what are the effects of this case lingering out there. Because one of the key pieces, and I don't know if this is popularly understood, is that if commerce finds in auctions favor, it's not just that tariffs are going to get slapped on imports from these four countries but that tariffs are going to be retroactively slapped on imports from those four countries for the past two years, which seems honestly to me crazy. Like that seems to violate some very core principles of, you know, (laughs) ex post facto (laughs) of actual judicial proceedings, as opposed to the quasi kind, like in an actual court, you sort of legendarily cannot retroactively (laughs) punish someone for something that, you know, was not clearly illegal at the time. So anyway, point being, it's not just that future imports from these countries will be slapped with a tariff if this succeeds, but that there's going to be a big retroactive penalty on imports. So what effect is this having on the industry at the moment? And it's just the uncertainty, right? I mean, it's just the uncertainty that's screwing everything up. Yeah, there are so many layers of uncertainty. Um, <laughs> let me clarify <laughs> True one. words. <laughs> well, let me clarify one thing. So that you are 1,000% right about the retroactivity of these tariffs. There were new regulations that went into place November 1, I believe, November 1 of 2021. And so that's sort of the outside date by which the retroactivity could apply, my understanding is. 
it could apply from the date of initiation, April 1 of 2022. So you can just like, like that's one uncertainty, right? We know they will be retroactive. How far back the Department of Commerce chooses to go is one unknown. Obviously, what the tariff will be, will be another unknown. Oh, so that's not a fixed thing. No, that's not a fixed thing. <laughs> there's not there's not some standard tariff here that gets it it's it's a case by case thing. It is a uh usually a company by company thing and if a, mm. if a company does not have a tariff rate, then there's a countrywide rate. Mm. Um and that's why you've heard Anything from 50% to 250%. Mm. That's why when the Secretary Romando, the Secretary of, of Commerce last week, testified that it would, you know, if there were tariffs, it might be 10 to 12%. That's why I, in particular, was very outspoken that that was just wrong. Um, that's not factually accurate. You know, if, if there are tariffs and a company does not have a countrywide rate, then it will be two hundred fifty percent, and so. So there's so there, so we don't know how retroactive it will be, right? And the tariff will be somewhere between thirty and two hundred fifty percent, which is also seems extremely large dollop of uncertainty there. <laughs> and a very large dollop. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think those are the two biggest uncertainties. Right. Then once once manufacture. So your question to me was. How is this impacting the market, right? And and we are in mad consensus that the uncertainty is really what is roiling the market. And how that is playing out is that manufacturers are just telling their customers here in the U.S., you know what, we're not going to sell you modules. There is way too much risk, way too much uncertainty. We're going to go sell our modules to Europe. Or we're going to sell them to Brazil. Or we're going to sell them to another country where there's not this crazy policy uncertainty. So like what could, to spell it out for me, what could happen? Like if they sell to someone in the U.S. for X price and then the tariff is imposed retroactively, the customer then has to pay more? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I literally don't understand how that works. Like if you, if you complete a transaction under the current circumstances and then the tariff is passed, and it's retroactive, do you then have to sort of reopen all those transactions and, and redo them? So the way that it works is that the importer of record is liable for the payment of the tariff. So manufacturer A, uh, they may sell their product to a customer for whatever the cost is, but you know under the terms of their importation agreements, like with the U.S. government, right? Their right to import into the U.S. Mm -hmm. They're obviously liable for additional duties, and this, if there were additional tariffs imposed, then the manufacturer will be liable for that additional money. They are going to contract that risk with their customer, right? They're going to say, "Hey, there's a risk here, right?" And so either you, customer, take the risk. It could be twenty percent. It could be two hundred percent. Could be two hundred fifty percent. Uh, we're happily bringing you some modules if you want to take that risk. Obviously, the customers are going to say, no way. I'm not going to take that risk. How do you even <laughs> price risk when it's <laughs> like, right. as we're saying, the range of possible outcomes, you know, the uncertainties are so broad. Like, I wouldn't even know how to put a number on that risk. Well, I think that's what we're seeing is that you are not alone in being unable to price that risk. <laughs> and so the alternative is they're just not shipping here. They're just like I 
Every conversation I have had with a customer, a developer, a residential installer, a CNI company, their number one challenge is they cannot get modules. They cannot find modules. They cannot. It's not a question of the modules are too expensive, right? Because that at least you could make a determination of whether the project can bear additional costs. <laughs> right. It is literally like I can't find them. Yes. Actual prices do help. <laughs> the operation of markets, I've found. Ah. Like having a numerical price does ease market transactions. Right? Did you have to go to like special school for that to figure <laughs> that one out? <laughs> so then um, imports have dried up. I mean, uh, uh, projects aren't being built. What's the, uh, I mean, it's only a few, we're only, only sort of a few months into this. So like what's happened yeah, so far? What's happened? Well, honestly, I think the entire solar market is a bit in shock at how quickly this has happened. Yeah. Um, but yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> Modules are not being imported into the United States. So even if you had a purchase order, it's not necessarily being honored. The domestic module suppliers, obviously... Everyone wants to buy from them. And right, so, <laughs> right. They must be uh, kind of enjoying this, right? I mean, they must be maxed out. Um, I, so I will tell you what I'm hearing, which is that they are definitely maxed out and perhaps some are not honoring contracts, you know, are renegotiating contracts because demand has gone up so much. Yeah, I'm sure they can get they can a premium. They can demand a higher price, right? Actually, I want to take a little factoid timeout. Sure. Try, let's get a, just as a marker here so listeners can get a sense how robust is the domestic U.S. solar manufacturing industry? In other words, for what percentage of the demand for cells and panels and modules in the U.S. could be satisfied by the existing domestic manufacturing sector? So it's currently about 25%. So if you think about last year, 2021, we had about 7.5 gigawatts of domestic production in the United States. Mm -hmm. That includes all technologies. So first solar's technology, as well as um, PV technology that's covered by these tariffs. Mm -hmm. uh, we installed about 23, 24 gigawatts last year. So roughly 25%. The majority of US production serves the residential market, the distributed market. Mm. Um, and so it is not 25% of the utility scale market and 25% of the resi market. I don't actually know off the top of my head what percentage is by market class, but it is a much lower percentage for the utility scale because that's not what is uh, here in the U.S. Right. So if you're cutting off imports from these four countries in question, your even best case scenario, if the U.S. domestic solar manufacturing industry is humming along at peak capacity, you're whacking off 75% of, <laughs> of, of your supply, which can only result, I would imagine, in prices from domestic manufacturers going through the roof. Like they could ask, like if this keeps going on, they could basically get whatever, <laughs> get whatever price they ask, couldn't they? I mean, they could until the market can't bear it anymore, right? And then those projects won't get built either. <laughs> right. I, mean, I think at some point there'll be a cap, but you are right. It, it distorts the laws of supply and demand because there's just such extreme pressure on demand. Obviously, there's lots of companies that are looking at 
supplier module manufacturers outside of those four countries, right? And trying to track back their supply chains. How robust is that? How concentrated is manufacturing in those four countries? Is there a robust manufacturing capacity outside those four countries that, that are not subject to tariffs? So the majority of U.S. imports come from those four countries. Um, there are other places that have manufacturing. I am because the U.S. doesn't have kind of a, they've not been the majority of our imports. There's not the same kind of quality assurance or mm. um, kind of bankability or comfort level with performance. And so there's a lot of that kind of work happening right now. I bet they're scrambling too, like uh, yeah. <laughs> solar yeah. manufacturers in, in whatever other country must be uh, excited about this. So projects aren't being built. Things are not being imported Consequently, U.S. coal burning uh, is on the rise <laughs> for the first time in years. Super exciting. There was an Indiana utility that announced that it's going to keep its coal plants open several years longer than planned because, you know, the possible spike in solar prices is going to screw up uh, a lot of utility plants. Like a lot of utilities are planning big shifts to solar and this could potentially throw a wrench in all those plans but let me ask this um the effects we're seeing now as you're saying are largely a result of uncertainty just because no one knows how this is going to go and there's such a wide array of possible outcomes so let me ask this like if the case doesn't go your way if commerce finds in favor of auction and these tariffs are slapped on imports from these four countries, presumably that would be damaging <laughs> to the industry, but probably not as damaging as this current fog of uncertainty. So uh, in other words, I'm asking like, is the level of damage that's happening right now, that will diminish somewhat just when there's some certainty, right? I think it will... Um... I mean, it obviously depends a little bit on on what happens and if commerce, you know, a 10% tariff versus a 200% tariff right. obviously is a very different outcome. Right. Um, the situation in Indiana, though, is really compelling for a number of reasons because it not only obviously is it troubling that a carbon emitting facility is going to continue to emit longer than was anticipated, but as you think about other utilities that were building, you know, they, they put out IRPs and they put out, you know, a whole plan and then they, and then they did RFPs to find least cost resources. And those were solar and storage usually combined. And so we're, now we're impacting reliability, right? Like we're not, we're, we're clearly talking about carbon, which is critical. We're also talking about reliability and we're talking about rates to customers. And so the beauty of the growth of solar is that we can impact the market. And the challenging part is that we're going to impact the market. If you take this fuel source out or make it uneconomic, it's going to have an impact on rate pairs and reliability. And that that thread, I think, is something that hasn't gotten quite as much attention, right? People think, oh, well, 
half-built solar projects in the middle of the desert. Well, that's not ideal. No, that's not (laughs) ideal. But so is like new generation not showing up when it's supposed to, right? Think about what's happening in South Carolina, that nuke is not showing up when it was supposed to. And that's impacting rates. Well, that's a whole different reason. And impacting supply. And similarly, if you take solar and storage, if you either take it off or push it out two, three, four years, what are we going to use? Like, how are we going to keep the lights on? What's the plan? We had the senior vice president of SPP at an event, I don't know, two weeks ago. And he and I were having this conversation, right? As they look at their resource planning from the RTO perspective, and they think about their queue, and then they think, well, you know, which 30, 40, 70% of what's in the queue might drop out because it can't show up because it's not getting built. That's a problem. Maybe 20% (laughs) of it. Maybe 80 to 90% of it. Uh, right, right. <laughs> that's, like, again, this is not a small uncertainty <laughs> band uh, no. that we're dealing with. It's not. It's not. So um, this is, I think when normal people hear about this, <laughs> there's a number. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if there are any normal people listening to my podcast. But I think when normal <laughs> people hear about this, they're baffled by a number of things. One of which is Biden's allegedly got this whole of government push for clean energy. It's one of his sort of signature things. There's all these things he's doing, you know, to advance clean energy. And then there's this one thing that his administration is doing, which could, you know, sort of almost single-handedly just chop the knees out from under the clean energy push. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like that's bizarre. Why do that? But it's worth noting here that there are legal like, well, let me let me ask this because I've been wondering about this. Once Oxen filed the case, was Commerce sort of obliged to take it up or did they have discretion on that front? Um, I mean, obviously, they felt they didn't have discretion. They felt like once the case was filed, they had to initiate. We have a very different view of that. But it's, you know water under the bridge at this point we are where we are right but you think they could have elected just to what just ignore it not ignore it but just find that an investigation wasn't necessary they also have and the regs clearly indicate this they also uh, have the authority and could have exercised it to initiate a case and then issue a preliminary determination on the same time Mm. right they could say you know what we will investigate and we're going to issue a preliminary negative determination. Like we don't think based on this petition, there's anything here. Um, We'll continue to take a look right through the rest of the investigative process. Um, But they obviously chose not to do that either. Yeah. They chose not to do that. And it's, you know, like the effects of this, the effects of them taking it on and leaving this uncertainty open are very predictable. (laughs) So again, I return to being baffled. So what, I guess, who has control over this? Like, uh, you know, could Biden do anything? Is there anyone who can do anything other than the people at the Commerce Department? And and, and who are they? And <laughs> what would you like them to do? Yeah, well, first of all, I share the bafflement uh, of, <laughs> of the regular people or normal people or whatever <laughs> phrase you used. Um, I don't consider myself either regular or normal, but I certainly <laughs> am very baffled. Um, and in all seriousness, it is without a doubt the most frustrating 
and maddening thing I've experienced in a long time in my professional career, right? Just this juxtaposition of rhetoric on the one hand and action on the other. And it is enough to sort of put our hands up in like agony, but, (laughs) but yet we fight on another day. Um, But it is, it is mind numbing. I can tell you what certainly should happen based on the statute. If you can't tell, I'm a lawyer. So I'm super focused (laughs) on sort of what the statute allows. Obviously this decision process is bounded by statute and, and being governed by people who are very attuned to what the statute allows and doesn't allow. And Mm -hmm. what the statute provides is that the secretary of commerce. So to answer your question, who's in charge, the secretary of commerce will make a determination about whether this circumvention petition is meritorious. And there's five things for her to consider. I talked about one of them, which was whether the processing was minor and insignificant Mm -hmm. sort of, even if she were to determine, yes, all of these elements have been met and there is circumvention, there's a fifth uh, factor, which is, is the imposition of tariffs appropriate, right? And appropriate is one of those words that lawyers love, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. You can sneak a lot <laughs> through that door. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think it's a pro- like Congress wrote this statute, right? And they, they, they know what the word appropriate means and sort of the, the discretion it conveys and it it gives the Secretary of Commerce. And so I think as the Secretary of Commerce is thinking about what is appropriate, reflecting on what the president, as you said, what the president's signature policy platforms are, how critical addressing climate is to all of us as humans, obviously the economic impact uh, that this has like there's a number of things that we think she should be considering as she determines the appropriate remedy for um, any finding if she were to make one. So in theory, she could look at this and say, yes, there's some circumvention happening, but slapping a giant tariff on it would screw up this administration's, one of this administration's central goals. So we're just not gonna. She theoretically has the discretion to say that. Yes, she does. The statute allows her to say that. Uh, we don't think she'll get to that point because we don't think, uh, you know, the, the first factors are met. But even if she were to get to that point, she still has the discretion to determine it's not appropriate. It's your second question about can Biden kind of, I don't know if you use the word overrule, but. Well, can he do anything? Um. Not really. I mean, I think the president kind of always has ability to overrule his cabinet secretaries, and but it, no one is expecting that he would do that. Like legally, he's supposed to allow commerce to be independent on this, right? I mean, that's the sort of idea. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea. You know, it's moments like this when I think back to the Trump administration, and I think, I wonder if Trump would be restrained in interfering with such decisions by norms and precedent. Uh, So what do you, (laughs) you have asked commerce to basically accelerate this process and issue, basically issue an early decision saying we're tossing this out. Commerce, as far as we can tell thus far, is not taking you up on that. So at this point, are we just sort of 
locked into a process where we get this preliminary decision in August and then a final decision in January. Is that schedule fixed at this point? Or do you think there is still any open possibility that they might push it up or accelerate it? Yeah. uh, So I don't characterize it personally as an early determination, right? I think the statute allows them to take up to 150 right, days. Right, right, right. But there's nothing that says they can't act sooner. And in fact, as I said, the, the uh, regulations allow them to issue a preliminary determination on day one. So all, all we're asking, all we're asking <laughs> is that they look at the precedent of their own department right? They look at what they have decided in prior cases and use that information in a timely manner to get to a more rapid decision. So, so far, there is, I'm sure you know, there's been an opportunity for people to comment on the investigation. There's 30-day period. And now there's been an opportunity for Oxen to respond and rebut those comments. And we've actually asked the Department of Commerce to takes the those 60 60 days 30 days 15 days and another you know two weeks to review everything and act by the end of may so what is it it's may 19th today i'm looking Mm. at my computer so no it's certainly not fixed in stone we do not think that we should all just resign and wait until august we're going to keep up the the uh pressure because as we talked about it's having such a huge impact on the market that uh, decision earlier rather than later would be extremely helpful. Okay, so let's turn now to the sort of substantive question or the kind of the, 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 the philosophical question. Does SEIA agree with the basic idea that it would be good for the U.S. to have its own freestanding, more or less independent domestic supply chain for solar technology? 100% yes. But, you know, I, we probably shouldn't, I shouldn't get diverted on this, but I just, I wonder about that. Everyone seems to agree on that. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, why, though? I mean, I understand that, you know, there's this larger issue of, like, manufacturing got offshored from the U.S. Mm-hmm. and our manufacturing sector is hollowed out and we want to build it back up. But why solar specifically, you know, like the world is full of products where the supply chains are concentrated in particular countries and we just don't worry about it. It's just part of sort of like specialization. It's part of the sort of advantage of capitalism is specialization and we get the cheaper products out of it and we don't worry that, you know, when it comes to like the toasters or whatever <laughs> that like we're we're vulnerable because our supplier of toasters because toaster manufacturing is concentrated might cut us off from toasters like i mean they could but they probably won't because they depend on our toaster money that's what trade is like it's not we're not vulnerable to suppliers suppliers are also vulnerable to customers that's it's a it's a two-way relationship so i guess i just wonder uh, why do we need a domestic solar manufacturing supply chain yeah no it's a it's a totally fair question and i am so i think i feel strongly that we need a domestic manufacturing supply chain for the following reasons and i i should not have said 100 percent quite so quickly <laughs> i think you characterize it as i don't, I don't think we need exclusively america 100 domestic 
supply chain. I, I mean, I think we're always going to have a global supply chain, but I do think it makes sense to bring back more domestic uh, manufacturing to the United States. And I think that for a couple of reasons, I think one, certainly the last two plus years and the challenges that COVID has brought with supply chain, the, the increasing price of transportation, sort of the vagrancies, right, of workforce in other countries as things are happening. Like we we all saw, solar included, how depending on supply from a particular part of the world or a particular country, it's actually, you know, it's a risk. It is a risk that perhaps we hadn't fully realized or fully experienced before this. And just uh, tossing this in there too, uh, there's the whole slave labor question. There's Oh yeah, that was going to be number two. <laughs> Let's, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, but I was like, no. oh, God, I don't want to forget to oh, no. I don't want to forget to mention that, you know, I, I'm doing devil's advocate a little bit. But obviously, this is a counter consideration. But if you if you think about it, I mean, certainly, obviously, slave labor and forced labor has zero place in the solar supply chain. And I think we've done a number of things which I'd be happy to talk about. But if you think even a little bit more generally, kind of the integrity of the supply chain, the carbon intensity of a supply chain kind of all of these different attributes that customers are caring about more deeply than perhaps they did five years ago or 10 years ago. I think that really um, lends itself to a more uh, transparent and onshore domestic supply chain. So I think there's that. And then I think third, I mean, it sort of does go to customers, right? Customers do want a U.S. manufactured product. And if we can invest at scale, like the at scale part is really important, I think we can we can continue to get the price down, right? And so it so even for those customer the customers say they want U.S. manufactured products until sometimes they see the price and then they think, oh, maybe I don't maybe I don't need it. <laughs> but scale, 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 scale. This gets to like I guess the broadest take on this issue, which is just that it seems like there are two kind of incommensurate impulses we have here. On the one hand, you know, we don't want slave labor. We don't want exploited labor. We don't want, you know, people cheating in international trade. We want domestic jobs. We want domestic supply chain and all this. But on the other hand, it's just inarguably true that the U.S. US's progress thus far on clean energy has depended on inexpensive solar from abroad where it's manufactured cheaper with cheaper labor. And, and of course, you know, that's great for solar installers in the solar industry and everything, but it's also, you know, like great for climate. Like mm -hmm. we want the transition to clean energy. So it just seems like those two are in tension here. And it's, you know, I hear people arguing from both sides and either side seems to sort of find ways of dismissing or talking around the other side, but it seems like there's just no way around it. Like there's no way to solve that equation. Like you're either going to have a more robust domestic manufacturing and more U.S. made panels that are more expensive, or you're going to continue basically taking advantage of cheap manufacturing and cheap labor abroad to more rapidly install solar. It just doesn't seem like there's a neat way of resolving that basic tension. Am I wrong? I, I, I think you might be wrong. I think that, <laughs> I hope um, I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just don't think that sort of the past is prologue is really applicable here. But if you think about how our industry is going, I mean, I really believe it's going to grow 
exponentially over the next decade and the next two decades. And so things that seemed uneconomic and not scalable in 2015 are going to be very doable in 2022 and 2025, right? So like there, there's just this change in norms. I think one of the things we've really been focused on is trying to figure out what the U.S. does really well in the manufacturing space and harnessing our energy and our time and our resources on those things. And then there are things that other countries do really well. Like we don't have to recreate every wheel here, but we should figure out what's the most efficient. Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the things. Is like even if it turns out U.S. manufacturers are really good at, at say, manufacturing panels, it's still the raw materials are almost all coming from China, right? Like the, the rare minerals, the, the early, all the early processing steps. Currently they are, but like we have a ton of ability, we have a lot of capacity to do po- to produce polysilicon here in the United States. But do we want to? Like a lot of that sort of basic mineral mining and processing business is really gross. <laughs> you know, and like China's doing it for cheap. So... So even if we develop a robust panel manufacturing industry, which would be great, you know, we'd still, if you choose to look at it this way, would be dependent on China for the raw materials unless we also move that over here. But it's just not clear that like these sort of low rungs of the manufacturing chain are some great prize. Right. Do we want that in in the U.S.? Well, I think you have um, either intentionally or unintentionally stumbled upon sort of the bigger question about the clean energy transition, right? And like, yes, we all want solar panels and wind turbines and batteries, but are we ready for the mining and the manufacturing and all the other pieces that go along with it? Same with EVs and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I think there's a real question about whether I, I am on camp. Yes, just for the record. Like, yes, we do <laughs> want that stuff. Uh, and we need to be cognizant of kind of the entire supply chain, but sort of embrace the fact that if we want to have solar panels, we're going to have to use polysilicon. And that means we're going to have to mine for metallurgical grade silicon, right? Like these things don't just happen by fiat. They are actually manufactured and mined. Right. Somebody has to do them. Somebody has to do them. And we want them done well and we want them done equitably. And we don't want them to be done in a way that exploits workers. But it seems like one thing we could do is since we have, since we're a large market, we could just do things like buying standards, you know, like we'll only buy raw materials from mines and processors that can demonstrate that they pass some basic, you know, standards, stuff like that, that would take care of the sort of moral concern. And it still wouldn't require standing up a mining and processing industry in the US. Right. Yes, we uh, we are, we're actually working on a whole uh, standards setting certification at SCIA. So say you do want to, as you do, and I think most people do want to enhance the U.S. domestic solar manufacturing industry. Why are tariffs, I mean, that's basically, you know, despite what the sort of technical justifications are, generally, politically, that's the motivation for tariffs, I I, I think, the reason they get away with them. Why are tariffs the wrong tool to do that? I mean, we have this, we have a decade of experience to show that it just doesn't work, right? Like if it worked, that would be a different conversation. But we have been tariffing product coming into the United States and it has not resulted in domestic manufacturing. Uh, We have 
not talked, but we certainly could talk about the domestic manufacturing incentives that are in the reconciliation bill, right? The pieces that passed out of the House of Representatives. This is where I want to conclude the conversation then. So yeah. if if we agree that we want domestic manufacturing yep. and, and tariffs don't work, which I think is, I had thought that was sort of uh, conventional wisdom, kind of common <laughs> knowledge. But as I've been reading about this, sort of like I keep seeing tariff defenders popping up out of out of the woodwork. But if we think tariffs are not the right instrument to make that happen, what is the right instrument? Because I just want to make a quick point here, which is that when we talk about this, I feel like people are a little glib about this. And I think people underestimate the distance between <laughs> where we are now and a robust domestic solar manufacturing chain. It's not a small thing. The idea that just like boosting the price of imports alone, it's a little bit like the carbon tax discussion, right? Like just <laughs> making fossil fuels a little more expensive on the margins is not going to have the motive effect of building an industry, right? Like if you right. want to build an industry, you've got to build an industry. It's a very big thing to do and requires big policy to do it. And, you know, people who say they want it, I'm not sure everybody's sort of fully reckoned with the size of the task. Right. Yeah, I agree with what you just said. Um, I think that if we really want to bring domestic manufacturing to the United States, then we do need to embrace those big, bold ideas. And our thinking, and obviously having spoken to lots of manufacturers, is that they need some certainty, right? Like it's mm. it's not rocket science. That you know, if you're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a manufacturing facility in the United States. You're going to want some market certainty. Yeah, that's not a small unit of <laughs> no. of investment. No, no. Like it's it sort of, you know, sometimes I do, I share your frustration and, you know, most folks doing this work are rational economic actors, right? And they're making kind of <laughs> risk reward calculations. And so anyway, they need some certainty. Um, and it, there's nothing particular about solar that needs certainty, right? Every, if we were talking about pencil manufacturers, right, right, right. right, they need certainty. But looking at what passed out of the House of Representatives and what we worked on really closely with them, it really is a long-term demand driver, right? So long-term extensions of the investment tax credit. So you know the customer base will be there. Mm -hmm. It is uh, an investment tax credit for the actual investment in the facility, and then a production tax credit. So for every, and it's not just modules and cells, but also things like trackers, inverters. Um, so, you know, covering more of the real high value pieces of the manufacturing base, a production tax credit. It's also woven into the ITC regime re requirements for domestic manufacturing to keep your uh, refundability, your direct pay, as the years go on, and then an adder for domestic content. And so that, in my mind, is the whole of government, or at least the whole of the uh, tax code, perhaps, <laughs> approach. What's Ossoff's thing? This yep. That deserves a mention in here. Yes. That's law now, right? That's passed? Or no, it's in the it's, BBB? Yes, it is in the BBB. Ugh. It is what I just described. <laughs> the, the investment tax credit for... For manufacturing investment and the production tax credit for like the production, the, that's Ossoff's bill. That's um, so it's passed out of the House. It's sitting in front of the Senate, waiting a vote, as you know. Uh, I know. So <laughs> that's not where you wanted to land. Uh. Well, <laughs> you, 
avoid the Senate if at all possible, but apparently it's not very possible. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think that's reversed. Well. Do you think, or does SEIA think that what is in the House version of the Build Back Better Act is to scale with the goal of building a domestic manufacturing industry? I do. I think when you, yes. And when you then add that to some of the assets of the Department of Energy, things like the loan guarantee program, things like the R&D spending at CEDO and other offices right. and the advanced manufacturing initiatives, that that those all of those tools that we have at our disposal, plus the national labs, right, plus universities. Mm-hmm. And so they, as you said, this is an ecosystem that we need to build. This is not just like, oh, someone goes stick a factory and fill in the state. It is a thoughtful and strategic ecosystem that needs to become sustainable and you know self-reliant at some point. And so, um, yeah, I think that that what is contained in the House provisions of Build Back Better, including Senator Ossoff's SEMA, is going to be significant. We we put out a press release a couple of weeks ago about the manufacturers that have articulated, you know, once that passes they'll be making announcements and and breaking ground on manufacturing facilities. So it's not just kind of theoretical. It's it's companies that have capital at the ready and are looking to the U.S. government to signal a long-term policy certainty so they can make those investments. Do you have any, I mean, getting into wild speculation here, but if, <laughs> if commerce finds in, in Oxen's favor and slaps these tariffs on these four countries and we get <laughs> something like the Build Back Better Act or some something like the whatever we get. When, if those things limp across the finish line, any idea how that would balance out? I mean, again, it depends on the, the level of the tariffs, but I think it would be sort of classic, like one step forward, one or two steps backwards, right? It would be just an incredibly lost opportunity if we were able to get provisions passed and then handicap ourselves with tariffs. Right. So the most unanswerable question of all, (laughs) uh, what the hell is going on in the Senate? And are you, is, I assume SEIA is up there lobbying or whatever. Uh, Do you have any insight into Senate dysfunction that, that anyone else doesn't have? Like, (laughs) Do you do you have any handicapping of the of the possibilities here? Uh, uh, what the hell's going on? No one knows what's going on. Do you know what's going on? Uh, I know that myself and my team are up on the hill lobbying literally every single day and having conversations with the you know all of the names that you read in the newspaper on a daily basis around what's happening. Uh, after that, I don't have a lot more insight than we're all reading in the news clips. They're they're keeping this pretty close the the people that are negotiating on um what is going to happen either on the clean energy side specifically or um generally on a reconciliation package i think they learned some really painful lessons at the end of last year that perhaps negotiating through the press was not a particularly effective mechanism (laughs) and so things are close and i i choose to take that as a good sign, right? If, if people, if there's enough, if there's enough at stake that we're not going to talk about it until there's something to announce, I'm going to choose to view that hopefully. 
She's just reading the tea leaves. What color is the smoke coming out of the window? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This is such a, you know, in an era of screwed up things happening. It's just like, do we need this one more? <laughs> do we need this one more screwed up thing happening? Really? Uh, on top of everything else. Uh, so thanks for coming on and uh, untangling it a little bit for us. And uh, maybe once something happens, who knows what that might be, uh, we can have you on to talk about the, the after effects. I love that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>